know, most entrepreneurs, they still think of pricing as more of an art and they, you know, kind of like just come up with a price based on a gut feel. One of the biggest goals for us was to show that there is a science and not just an art. And the science of pricing dominates the art. That's the voice of Madhavan Ramanujam. World-renowned venture capitalist Bill Gurley says it well. He is to monetization strategy what Bob Marley is to reggae music. And his book, Monetizing Innovation, is the first book I recommend to all the founders I work with when it comes to pricing. This is Mike Maples Jr. Floodgate, and it's go time with Madhavan Ramanujam. Welcome to Starting Greatness, a podcast dedicated to ambitious founders who want to go from nothing to awesome super fast. When you're a startup founder, you have to channel your inner James Bond, your MacGyver, your Wonder Woman. I'm going to help you win by curating the lessons of the super performers, but before they were successful. So without further ado, ignition sequence start. Let's get started. Manavan Ramanujam is a humble voice with great power. I actually found out about his book, Monetizing Innovation, from multiple founders I work with when I asked a simple question. What is the one book you wish I had told you about when we first started working together? This intrigued me, and when I read his book, it was completely obvious these founders were right. So what's the big deal about monetizing innovation? Well, it turns out that you can't just create value for the rest of the world when you start something you also have to find a way to claim value for your business if you're destined for greatness. Madhavan has better ideas about how to do this than anyone I know, and I'm so excited he agreed to be a guest on the show. Let's talk to him. Madhavan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Mike, for having me on the show. I'm a huge fan of your book. It's probably the best book on pricing I've ever read for startups. And even though it applies to more than just startups, I think it's I, it's the go-to book that I point founders to. I'd love to just learn more about how you got fascinated with pricing and monetization and what, what was your journey on the path to writing this book, Monetizing Innovation, in the first place? Thanks for those nice words, Mike. Um, my fascination for pricing started, uh, I guess, way back when I was at Stanford. You know, like most people graduating from Stanford, I was thinking of, uh, you know, founding my own startup. We even had some ideas. You know, I was the guy who was responsible for all these business plans. And then we ended up pitching to like several VCs. And then there was this one question that the VC, one of the VCs asked me. He said, how do you know you would monetize on your idea? And I pulled up my assumptions and my spreadsheets and showed it to him. And he quickly said, you've labeled them right. Those are assumptions. <laughs> how do you <laughs> truly know? <laughs> and that question really haunted me. And, and I was, it drove me. And uh, as luck would have it, uh, within a week of that kind of conversation, I got a call from the you know, managing partner of Simon Kutcher and Partners, the world's largest you know, pricing strategy consulting firm, saying that they were hiring. I decided to join Simon Kutcher 12 years ago, last nine as a partner, last five also on the board of our company. It's been probably one of the most amazing experiences of my life. And the reason I wrote monetizing innovation, right? For many years working at Simon Kutcher, you know, I witnessed how Silicon Valley was obsessed with creating you know, amazing new innovations, but hardly, hardly paid attention as to how to monetize them successfully. I mean, we used to even get calls saying, 
hey, I've built a new product. We've been working on it for the last two years. And oops, we need a price. <laughs> and by the way, we needed it last week. When you couple that kind of reaction with the failure rate and innovation that we see in the Valley, that is so high. You know, the classic uh, uh, phrase that comes to mind when you take a step back and look at it is these companies were simply throwing spaghetti, spaghetti up against the wall and seeing if it sticks. Uh, in other words, the fundamental issue for the high failure rate is that pricing or commercialization was an afterthought to building the product. And that's what you know, made me write this book, Monetizing Innovation, and I wish to flip that process in its head. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I remember when I f- first read Steve Blank's book, The Four Steps of the Epiphany, he said something similar about getting customers, right? People would, they'd build the product, and then after they were done with the product, they would go get customers. And that was yes. kind of the thought process. And so Steve argued that you should develop products and customers in parallel, almost more like a dance than a sequence. Mm-hmm. And and your book kind of makes the same point about pricing in many ways, right? Like you can't you can't separate the price from the product itself if you're thinking about it the right way. That's right. Yep. And it can't be an afterthought. So then, and, and you have an example that I've always really liked, which was the Porsche Cayenne. You probably get asked to tell this story a lot of times, but I think listeners would find it interesting. Sure. I think the point is uh, best illustrated uh, from what I call as the tale of two cars. You know, the mm-hmm. first car in our story is from Fiat. So in 2014, they wanted to reintroduce the Dodge Dart in the market and, and really own the sedan market because they were missing that opportunity. And there was a lot of excitement and fanfare. The innovation process was actually documented pretty well in a commercial they released. You know, the process started with a lot of excitement, you know, engineers, designers, product folks obsessing over building the next awesome car, you know, prototype after prototype were built, destroyed, rebuilt, till the engineers thought that they had perfected the product. And when it was time to launch the car in the market, they chose a price of $15,995 and launched it in the market. This Mm -hmm. is the story of the first car. The second car in our story is the story of Porsche. Now, back in the 90s, they were driving off a financial cliff, if not at 200 miles per hour, pretty darn fast. Yep. You know, they were known for their speed machines, but they came up with this idea to build an SUV. You know, that truly was a bold idea. And the innovation process they followed couldn't have been more you know, drastically different than the Dodge. You know, they started by testing in the market whether there's an appetite for an SUV from Porsche before a single blueprint was actually made. Now, to their pleasant surprise, they not only found an appetite, but also a willingness to pay for one. And what happened next was even more fascinating. Every feature that went into the car was battle-tested with their customers, and no amount of convincing by an engineer would do the trick. It needed to be approved in a customer test. What they were trying to do was to find if customers needed the features that they needed to build, did they value it? And more fundamentally, would they pay for these features? Now, to give you an example, a six-speed manual transmission, which is what Porsche was, was at least most famous for back then, mm-hmm. was out of the window because customers did not need this in an SUV, did not value it, and were not willing to pay for this. Uh, similarly, uh, let's say a huge cup holder, which goes against the grain of most German engineers, was in because people needed it, valued it, and were willing to pay for it. And on and on this went, and they designed the car around what customers need, value, and were willing to pay for, in short, around the price. The outcome from these two cars couldn't have been more different. The Market Watch actually documented Dodge Dart as the single biggest flop in 2015. 
and the car came out with a plethora of things that the customers, their customers were truly not looking for and definitely not willing to pay for. Porsche, on the other hand, had a dramatic success. I mean, the SUV was called Cayenne, like you pointed out. One of the biggest successes in automotive history and accounts for almost half of Porsche's profits. So the moral of the story here is that pricing is key from the get-go and needs to be brought up front in the innovation process and cannot be an afterthought. So the, the other thing I really liked about the, the anecdote was this idea of sometimes you can define your customer base or your prospect base based on the people who are willing to pay a certain price, right? So you kind of say, okay, um, if, we can't, if we can't sell an SUV for more than, say, I don't know what their cutoff was, like $75,000 or something like that, mm-hmm. uh, we're not going to make one. And so we're only going to make one if people will pay more than that for it. And mm-hmm. so the only people I'm interested in talking to are the people who potentially would, right? So if somebody says, well, my limit is to pay $50,000 for an SUV, yep. part of what Porsche got right was they said, hey, that's wonderful for you, but, but we're not going to gather requirements from you. That's exactly right. It's productizing to a price and not just pricing the product. Before we jump into more examples of monetizing well, maybe we should talk about the traps to avoid. And you've come up with a few good categories of mistakes and traps. So why don't, why don't we go through those? In general, we see four failure patterns when it comes to monetizing innovation. Um, the first one is what we call as a feature shock. So these are products where you know, there is simply too much going on. You know, the, the entrepreneur or the company, when they bought the product out, they just decided to actually put everything in the kitchen sink in a product and release the product. Uh, but at the end of the day, this product perhaps does not resonate with any particular person and it just feels like an excess. And the right way to do this would have been to version the products across segments. I mean, if you hear things like, for instance, let's just throw this feature in. Our customers don't know what they want. Most likely you're on to making a feature shock. Mm. Um, and it happens even in the most, some of the most amazing companies. Like, for instance, if you take Amazon, which is super successful, uh, yeah. one of the most super successful companies of our times, if you look at the Fire Phone, um, you know, it came out with a plethora of features that no one was looking for. And it was just an, too much of an excess. Uh, and I, my favorite uh, one, which I didn't like, <laughs> there was four cameras that could actually track your eyeball movement so that you didn't need you know, geeky glasses to get 3D perspective. While that might sound interesting, no one is willing to pay for it. And then if you have too many of these kind of features, the phone started with $179. In six months, it was 99 cents. And another three months, they wrote the business off. So it's putting, putting stuff into a product because you can. Exactly. And not, not because you should. And then I think your, your next trap, I think you call it minivations. That is right. So minivations are products that are the you know, are absolutely the right product market fit, but the company or the entrepreneur did not have the courage to charge the right price. Mm. So this is, uh, to give you a classic example, you know, one of the semiconductor companies came up with a groundbreaking chip that was supposed to revolutionize consumer electronics. And they thought about how to come up with the pricing. There was literally no parallel in the market. I mean, they had done a previous generation at 65 cents and they said, okay, you know what? We know about this thing called Moore's Law and we know we have done something remarkably unique. Let's price this as 85 cents. <laughs> and the worst kept secret in the room was everyone knew that 
they could have priced higher but they just went for like 85 cents because they wanted to you know they were not sure this product flew off the shelves but when they did a post mortem with their own you know clients the cons- their consumer electronic companies were saying hey your product alone made us capture $50 from our customers so 85 cents for like $50 of economic value generated is simply not fair and they actually said they would have they would have been just fine if this company had charged up to $5 so that's an example of a you know classic product market fit but you just under monetized like crazy and built a mini version now why do you why do you think that happens is it because the the founder lacks confidence in their differentiation or they feel you know sort of sheepish about asking for what the product's worth i think it's a combination of reasons i think it starts with the founders not necessarily having the courage because it dampens their enthusiasm about the innovation it's almost mm-hmm. like uh, you know the, the thing that kills the party <laughs> yeah. it's a bus kill right <laughs> and then it's also um, all kinds of business cases are usually done and you're trying to hit some numbers without truly understanding you know market willingness to pay and price elasticity all of those business cases are useless in the sense that you're just trying to hit a number uh, and if you're trying to hit a number the most you know intuitive thing that someone would say i would let let's you know lowball this and then see what happens we'll beat expectations so they start you know reducing the price than what from what it should be and they try to see the they try to play the volume game when they should actually be playing both the pricing and the volume game and i think the third thing is which which which, which i would say the third reason is you know most entrepreneurs and founders i mean they they still think of pricing as more of an art and they you know kind of like just come up with a price based on a gut feel but i think hopefully monetizing innovation one of the biggest goals for us was to show that there is a science and not just an art and the science of pricing dominates the art and and you know as an entrepreneur or a company you actually don't have a choice whether you'll have a pricing conversation with your customers the only thing in your control is when you will have it i mean you and can who takes the initiative and who takes the initiative i mean you can follow the dodge dart approach and have it after the fact and hope for the best or follow the porsche way where you have these conversations much earlier to see if customers need and value your product and are willing to pay for it i mean in 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 short you're having this awesome sales and marketing conversation before you build the product and if someone doesn't buy it before chances are they're not going to buy it afterwards it's as simple as and particularly in the world of startups you know we like to say that when you when you're a startup a startup is a provocative act and the world is just doing what the world's doing mm-hmm. and so for you to move the needle for a potential customer you have to do something unique that they're desperate for exactly. and if if you do something that if there's something that only you can do that they're desperate for you have to be not a very good business person to not monetize it right <laughs> like in theory exactly. right you're either you're either really bad at pricing or you have you 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 over over believe in the value proposition of your product but the, but you know one of those two things is true 100% and i think the opposite also happens uh, often where you should bring out a product but you don't because it goes against you know the grain of your company or dna which actually brings me to the third monetizing innovation yep. failure type which is the hidden gems these are products that you know a company should have launched but didn't have the courage to because it just went against their grain i think the classic example here is like kodak for instance they had the you know ip for digital photographs back in the 70s but they didn't bring this out because they were worried about cannibalizing their you know print business 
and they didn't harness this hidden gem and the hidden gem you know often happens when there's an inflection point like a hardware company trying to do software software company trying to do hardware offline companies trying to do online online trying to do offline etc and if you don't look hard enough you probably don't find the hidden gem mm-hmm. um and and you don't harness it i mean companies like for instance autotrader or cars.com were started from it started by the atlanta daily or the chicago tribune when they actually realized that newspaper ads would be a thing of the past and they created these two-sided marketplaces uh and they're all now you know several billion dollar companies because they realized the hidden gem with the inflection point of the internet etc right i think so that's that's again something that you want to watch out for so then you also talk about undead products so what what causes an undead product to happen yeah this is the fourth type and by far my favorite uh, we called it uh, <laughs> undead because in you know kind of classic science fiction movie fashion you should have never launched this product because they just come back to haunt you <laughs> and they come it's, in it's the f- opposite of it's the opposite of being non-courageous it's like exactly it's not, not, not having a healthy respect for yeah. what you're about to do to yourself exactly uh, and they come in two varieties they are an answer to uh, a question that no one cares about uh, or they are the wrong answer to the right question um either way you shouldn't have productized this because they come back to haunt you okay um and and in fact happens that you know again some of the most uh, successful companies like if you take for instance google glass yep. it's probably dead on arrival i mean only the paparazzi's used it for like few weeks and it was done the better thing to have done there was if they truly followed the principles of monetizing innovation they would have found that the market opportunity is in b2b and not b2c and mm. productize this for like a b2b operations like for instance if i'm a doctor or if i'm a you know a repair technician the ability to actually have my hands available is uh, fundamental and there is a willingness to pay so i mean productizing to b2b and then bringing to b2c might have been the right strategy i mean we we hear now that google is embarking on the google glass b2b strategy so i think that is that is absolutely right but for the b2c segment it was the wrong answer to the right question and no one cared about it Are, are there other examples that that are kind of famous in your analysis of this? Yeah, I mean uh, the the uh, the other one that comes to mind, recent one is uh, Juicero, right? Okay. The four hundred dollar machine that probably reproduces the same test as like squeezing the fruit with your own hands. <laughs> That's uh, <laughs> obviously an undead because there's a lot of bells and whistles, but at the end of the day, it's the wrong answer to the right question, perhaps. um that was a uh, one and even segway for instance in the not so much in the recent past um again wrong answer to the right question because at 5000 bucks or 10000 when they were released no one really wanted it they didn't need it they were not willing to pay for it and only used in uh, you know tourist malls and by probably cops nowadays after 10 years i think they made their first year forecast so. <laughs> I'm getting depressed by all these examples of people doing it wrong. Let's let's go back to people who did it right or let's let's talk about what founders can do should do. You know, earlier you'd said that pricing needs to be intrinsic to the product from the get-go. So like how do you recommend founders engage customers early to find their willingness to pay? So the idea is to achieve not just a product market fit but what I call a product market pricing fit. For instance, if someone comes and asks me right now, I mean do you like the headset that you're using I would say yeah I like it but if 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 they ask me do you like it for $400 the whole conversation is different right yeah. so if I didn't put pricing as part of my product market test 
I'm often hearing just what I want to hear. So the crux is to achieve a product market pricing fit and ensure that you have an idea that is commercializable when you're building it. So you're no longer hoping to monetize, but you truly know you will. So then you can dedicate all your resources to building an awesome product because you know there's a product market pricing fit. Test with customers to see whether they will need the innovation that, that you're building. Do they value it? And then just ask them the question, will you pay for it? And if someone says no, ask them the most important question, which is why? And often you start hearing so much information that is useful to redesign your products in such a way that, that they will actually pay and you will maximize your success. Now put a price on your product in your product market tests and see if people would purchase the product. You know, keep doubling that price till you reach a point where they start reacting violently. You know that you reach some kind of psychological threshold, right? Mm -hmm. Another way to test this is anchor people uh, on a relative way. Like for instance, you know, what this means is if you go and ask someone, you know, how much should I charge for this? You will get nonsense back because people can't come up with these kind of answers. And frankly, you're passing on what you should do to your customers. Another really simple question to ask, but it has a ton of value is to what I call, what I call as ask the acceptable, expensive or prohibitively expensive questions. You know, have the sales and marketing conversation, put the product in front of uh, your customers, pitch it, and then ask them, what do you think is an acceptable price for this idea or product? Of course, everyone wants to lowball. They love negotiating with themselves. They're going to give you an answer. You know, clock this answer. Then ask them, what do you think is an expensive price? They'll give you an answer, clock it, and then ask them, what do you think is a prohibitively expensive price? Clock mm -hmm. that one. And from our experience across uh, having done more than 25,000 projects in this space, what we really see is acceptable price tends to be the price that they not only love your product, but they also love your price. <laughs> yep. right? Expensive tends to be the price that is more value price. Doesn't, that is the right price aligned with the value that you actually deliver. They won't hate you. They won't love you, but they will pay you for it. Prohibitively yeah. expensive tends to be the price that they will laugh you out of the room. I mean, even some simple uh, kind of uh, questions such as this would start giving you a range. And if people don't even give you an answer, then ask them, why wouldn't they pay for it? And it's better to find out you know, seven months before you release your product than seven months after. Now, now the other point I love is um, how you charge is just as important as what you charge, you know, maybe even more so. What's up with that? This is one of the most important lessons in monetizing innovation as in, uh, because when, when you think about pricing, you know, most people gravitate towards the, a dollar figure. That's just a price point. I mean, when we think about price, we think about it as a measure, as in like, you know, when liter is a measure of volume, price is a measure of value. And when you think about it this way, price is a proxy for whether customers like your product, how badly do they, I mean, how, how much they like it and how much are they willing to pay for it. And hence, things like your pricing model become way more important than the price level that you actually choose uh, for your products, right? And focusing on this as in how you charge is way more important than how much. For instance, take an example um, from, from an industry of tires. You know, like if you take tires, it's, it's a notorious industry for being price sensitive. I mean, you might have gone and walked into, you know, tire shops, at least back in the days. You see all these tires. They all kind of look similar, but they're priced very differently. And you don't know why you're paying what you're paying. So it's a very price sensitive market. And Michelin, 
they came up with a super innovative tire which was supposed to last 20% longer and this was uh, tires that they had made for truckers to like take goods from point a to point b if they had just you know kept this tire uh, which was supposed to last for 20% longer and asked for a 20% price premium there is no chance they would have gotten it what they actually did was they changed the way they charged for the tires and this was a big innovation in the industry rather than charging uh, on a per tire basis what they said is we will charge based on a per kilometer or per mile basis what happened was fantastic i mean the tires actually lasted for 20% more so they recouped that but the truckers loved this kind of monetization model because it was aligned with the value that michelin was bringing to the table now they could also like write in their invoices to their end customers that i've made 1700 miles as a trip and here's a tire cost and actually even ended up passing it to customers in you know majority of situations they just loved it it was a phenomenal success and if you don't think about how to charge you might be severely limiting yourself uh, in terms of your true monetizing opportunity the the other component of what you're saying that i that really resonates with me is that a lot of times people have low prices that are complicated yep and they they're not successful and then in the same market would have adopted a product with a much higher price that's simple and yes. so so like i find that a lot of times customers gravitate to reasonable sounding models even if they're expensive that's correct uh, and, whereas and- they 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 shy away from complicated sounding models because they 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 figure that you're pulling a fast one on them somehow right they're they're just like it's just too just too hard for me to get my head around this uh it just doesn't it just doesn't you know I, i'm not i'm just not feeling it right <laughs> exactly uh, we we actually for our clients we we do a lot of break even uh tests with their customers to understand the best pricing model right for instance if i say i'm going to charge you 3% for every $100 or i'm going to charge you uh you know 3 dollars for every 100 uh, dollars or i'm going to charge you one and a half in fixed and then 1.5% um you know which one would you choose or would you be indifferent i mean if yeah. you assume the economic human being that is uh, probably the underpinning of most of what we learn in school uh people would say i'm indifferent because all of the answers are the same but i have i'm yet to find a example where that is the outcome majority of the time all of the times people would have a dominant model that they actually think is fair like i mean a 3 dollars probably sounds a bit more fair for instance for someone and identifying this you can start truly identifying these kind of pricing models that align with you know the value that you bring so don't rush to like things like okay i'm going to do a subscription for seat for instance because that feels comfortable or that's what everyone else is doing you know understanding how to charge is fundamental and then how much one simple test that we do i mean um, ask your customers to articulate your own pricing strategy back to you hmm and if they can do it properly they've truly gotten it if they can't and they're struggling then you actually know that you're creating all this complexity when you like to your point it has to be simple no brainer give one back to them and then focus on how to monetize in a customer lifetime value perspective Now the the other dimension of this I'm curious about and I might be putting you on the spot here a little bit Madhavan is um it it's a little bit of a Clay Christensen angle so I used to believe that if we were selling to a customer you did not want to have a pricing model that was similar to the incumbent solution and the the reason for that is that 
now the incumbent has ways to co-opt you. And not only that, you know, the, the customer's unlikely to believe that they should pay you as much per seat as the incumbent per seat. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, now your price is capped as a, as a function of the price the incumbent charges. Yep. So like if you're like, let's say that you're selling into um, an ERP environment and SAP is the incumbent, um, you don't want to sell by the seat. You want to sell by the transaction or by anything but the seat, right? And yes. one of the ways that I found having this willingness to pay discussion is to say, hey, look, in order for this relationship to work, I need to be able to make X dollars per transaction Yep. and, and not Y dollars per seat. Is, is there a world where that could happen? Or am I just, am I, do I just have my happy ears on? Do I, am I in a state of denial? Right. But now, now you kind of enlist the customer in helping mm-hmm. you come up with a reason for him to say that's justified. Yep. Absolutely. And now uh, SAP can't come back at you and co-opt you by just lowering the price or by just saying, oh yeah, we're going to have that product on our roadmap. We'll just give it to you. You know, now all of a sudden you're, you're going to market with an orthogonal strategy that's much more disorienting to the incumbents. Exactly. I mean, you'd wish that everyone would do that. Disrupting an existing space doesn't mean charging lower, but even charging differently as in the pricing model. And I think that's an important lesson. I do agree with uh, everything you said. I mean, for instance, the classic example is Netflix having a totally different model than Blockbuster back in the day, right? I mean, and, and, and the whole comparison is different and it's, you, you make it harder to compare because you, you try to make a model that actually intuitively makes sense to people rather than trying to follow existing patterns and charge lower because you're just probably yeah. not bringing as much value to the table as someone else, right? So I think in those situations, the how you charge becomes um, even more important. Uh, so I definitely it, agree with your point of view. Now, you've, you've also talked about segmenting by willingness to pay. How do you think about that? And how do you segment by willingness to pay without just being all over the place and having too many products and losing focus? I think, first of all, I hope that people would segment because more often than not, I hear I'm building a one-size-fits-all. Yeah. Uh, typically, what I tell them is you're building a one-size-fits-none. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> as in, you, you know, we, we, we have not found a single market where the needs and preferences are homogenous. I mean, your customers are heterogeneous, whether you like it or not. Um, yeah. And building products for those heterogeneous customers is the key. I mean, even take a simple example, like the water we drink. In a fountain, it's free. In a bottle, it's $2. You put gas in it, it's $2.50. In a throw it in a mini bar, it's $5. It's the same damn water. It, it, this, the crux of segmentation is that you need to build products to segments. If you're, uh, if you're building a product and then try to position to different segments, you've kind of already lost the battle. So you need to productize towards segments. And, and even if you're a startup which does not have you know, resources to, let's say, focus on building many versions um, do this exercise, you know, find out whether customers need your product, are they willing, you know, are they value it, are they willing to pay for it, identify clusters and segments of, uh, you know, customers based on this information, and then decide which one you want to prioritize and build the right product for the right segment, and then bring the versions out, rather than throwing everything in the kitchen sink, assuming that you will build your product for your average customer, but in reality, such an average customer does not exist, right? So that's, that's the key. It's doing segmentation based on needs, value, and willingness to pay. I, I mean, in Silicon Valley, at least, I mean, segmentation is a known topic. I mean, we, when we go and ask people, 
you know, do you have a segmentation strategy? Many people might say it, but the, but the point is they, they do segmentation based on things like demographics and personas and get totally. it horribly wrong. Totally. I mean, yeah, uh, they, they look at it like it's a classification scheme, right? They, exactly. what they, what they don't realize is that it should guide all your go to market strategy. Exactly. And my favorite example is if you think of a person who's 69, incredibly wealthy, married, lives in the United Kingdom in a castle and has two children. And you perhaps thought about Prince Charles, but that also fits Ozzy Osbourne. (laughs) (laughs) And I would bet that their needs are very different. You know, they value things differently and are willing to pay for those things differently. And you would segment by that. Yeah, you would hope. If you just segment based on demographics just going to get it wrong. Are, are there any other resources about pricing out there, monetization that you think are really good that people should know about? Yeah, I think I can probably point to like uh, three resources. Um, the first one is there are, you know, firms like First Round or OpenView uh, who have put out a lot of good articles on pricing. I mean, Kyle Poyar, for instance, from OpenView um, has written some really good articles on pricing, especially for startups and SaaS companies. So I think that's a great resource. The second one I would probably say is there's a, uh, believe it or not, there's an organization called the Professional Pricing Society. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and it's actually... Uh, uh, Sounds like a zany group. Yeah, exactly. I mean, <laughs> 10 years ago, no one had pricing as part of their job titles, but you see hundreds and thousands of people nowadays. I mean, as in it's, uh, it's becoming more of known that pricing is a science, not just an art. So I think they have some really good resources that you can tap into, courses that you can take, et cetera. And I think the third one that I would say is uh, another book that we wrote at Simon Kutcher. Um, it is actually written by Mr. Simon of Simon Kutcher. It's called The Confessions of the Pricing Man. So okay. he's the founder of our company, started this 34 years ago. I find that fascinating. And I kind of say that's a better book out of monetizing innovation and confession. So <laughs> you got you got to get, get, get put one in for the boss. Huh? <laughs> yeah, something like that. So. <laughs> so, you know, somewhere out there, there's a founder with very grand ambitions. Yeah. And uh, at the very early stages of their journey, they've got all the degrees of freedom in front of them, although lots of clouds ahead, too, in this environment. What, what are some other things that we haven't covered so far in our discussion that you think are, are super important for them to know? I think the four words that I have in mind for entrepreneurs who are starting out and who have big dreams, the four words to remember is price before product, period. <laughs> I like that. Well, thanks, Madhavan. It was a pleasure talking to you. I think, I think people are going to really like this. Absolutely. Thanks, Mike, and uh, enjoyed being on your show. Thanks for listening to the Starting Greatness podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode or you're new to the show, I hope you listen to our past interviews with legendary founders like Reed Hoffman, Mark Andreessen, the Instagram founders, and Keith Raboy. I'd love to have you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode. And if you like the show, I'd be grateful if you leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow me on Twitter at M2JR and subscribe to our newsletter for exclusive content and events at greatness.substack.com. Until we catch up again, I hope you'll never let go of your inner power to do great things in whatever matters to you. Thank you for listening.